In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Brethren in Christ, Laudato Jesus Christus in Sequila. This is Timothy Flanders with the Meaning of Catholic. Jesus is King. Happy to be joined today by my friend, Dr. Richard DeClue. Richard, how you doing, brother? Good. How are you, brother? Doing excellent. Uh, happy to talk about Joseph Ratzinger. Today's topic, this is episode one of Pope Benedict Appreciation Month at uh, Meaning of Catholic. Uh, today's topic, the greatness of Joseph Ratzinger. So we have a Ratzigarian with us, uh, Richard. Um, and uh, before we get into the topic, what is new? What's going on at Word on Fire? What's new? There's a lot of different things going on. Um, we've started our series of uh, what we call reading challenges. So we did Dei Verbum. I've got half of the Lumen Gentium videos recorded. I've also recorded a six-part course um, going through Vatican II, but thematically rather than by document by document. So it's going to be more of a cohesive presentation that I chose it so that it can help get rid of some of the misunderstandings because I'm trying to show how all of the different doctrines link together in that one. Um, I'm writing a book on the theology of Pope Benedict XVI as well. And we've got, I've got an article coming out in Evangelization and Culture on Eschatology and uh yeah so where's the article gonna be it's called evangelization and culture oh is it is that gonna be at word on fire or a journal somewhere yes it's a quarterly journal of the word on fire institute oh i see okay excellent so and then when are when are the uh courses coming out that you're producing right now i think we um i'm not exactly sure i think sometime this spring okay so like april ish is that supposed to go with the with this text with the um yeah well the reading four. the reading challenges are because they they come with um suggested readings for each week and then i do an in- introductory video at the beginning of the week and then there's a summary video at the end of the week okay so i kind of let you know up front what your the main themes you're going to encounter in the reading and then after we've read it i kind of summarize and complement the reading. So I might explain certain things and give a background to certain ideas or add some content and just explain the general gist of the main themes. Excellent. Yeah, so I, as I've mentioned before on Meaning of Catholic, this this text and um, the Institute, the Word on Fire Institute, this is specifically addressing the criticisms of Vatican II. So if you want to investigate the steel man argument, as it were, uh, defending Vatican II, trying to interpret it as best as, uh, you know, according to tradition, uh, especially according to the Communio School of Thought. Um, this is a text, a great text to, to use for that. And Word of Fire is producing these videos. Um, so let's get into our topic. Um, wh- I wanted to talk about some of the greatest texts to read, which we will reference throughout this. Um, I think the easiest, probably the easiest text to get into Ratzinger is probably his memoirs, I think. I, I mean, yeah. I really like biographies because it's just an easy way to get into somebody's thought, see where they're coming from. But uh, he's definitely famous for this, which is the Theology of the Liturgy. Uh, this text is put out by Ignatius. It's very good. It has Spirit of the Liturgy, which is his main 
um, work on the liturgy as well as a ton of other content on the liturgy. Um, I don't know when they're coming out with their next stuff on that. But then we've got the two magisterial biographies, volume one and volume two, that just came out with Peter Seawald. Um, those are very, very good. I just cracked into uh, volume two at this point. But um, so, Richard, what are some of the best um, texts that you would recommend or that have been impactful for you? And then also tell us about your work, your book, and tell us more about that. Yeah. So like you, I'm glad you brought up um, Milestones, the biography, because when people ask me where to start, I always recommend starting with Milestones. And the reason is there are a lot of things in his biography, talking about his early life especially, that are sort of precursors to his later thought. So, for instance, you can already see in Milestones his love for the liturgy, for instance, in his understanding of, of liturgy and how important that was. His idea of the primacy of the faith of the simple. Um, and so you get a good insight into where he's coming from, and that really helps situate his thought when you read it in other places. Another one that's really good if you're looking for an introduction to how he understands theology is this short book, which is a pretty easy read called The Nature and Mission of Theology. And um, it's one of my favorites. He also goes into the relationship between philosophy and theology in here. He's got a great section on that. Um, everyone knows about Introduction to Christianity. This is the book everyone speaks about all the time. And it's good. It's worth the read. I personally prefer this much less well-known book, Principles of Catholic Theology, Building Stones for Fundamental Theology. Um, this impacted me more even than Introduction to Christianity did. There's also another short book, if you're interested in his ecclesiology, which I think is probably his best area of theology, called Called to Communion. And it's very short. It's not very long, um, but Called to Communion. And it's, it's a phenomenal book. So I highly recommend that. And if you're interested in the liturgy stuff, in addition to the one you mentioned, there's another short book called Feast of Faith. And that's really good if you want to get into liturgical theology, because he goes into a lot of the old covenant precursors to the liturgy and how the new the new covenant, the, the Holy Mass, fulfills that. So that's another one. Oh, yeah. And I, that, that makes me think of um, actually there's there's a, a really awesome book for kids that's based on Pope Benedict and it's called the catechism of the, of the seven sacraments. You know about this? Okay. So it's the Lego book. So catechism of the seven sacraments. And it's, it's this catechism for kids, which is a bunch of Legos who are doing the whole sacraments, but it's all about, it's all through Pope Benedict's um, typological understanding of the old Testament. It's very rich biblically, uh, for the kids, it's it's really awesome. It's a phenomenal text for the kids. So yeah, uh, yeah, it's a Lego Lego Pope Benedict. So take a look at that. Yeah. Um, so anyhow, yeah. So you you want to break down five main reasons that Joseph Ratzinger is so great, the greatness of his thought. So um, number one, um, Ratzinger's theological method. Go ahead, tell, break it break it down for us, Richard. Yeah, his his theological method, I think, is is part of his greatness because it, somewhat in his conflict with, you know, there's that famous quote where he said that um, the more 
him and Ronner had contact and collaborated on things, the clearer it became that they lived on two different theological planets. And I think a lot of that comes down to their differences in theological method. And one criticism that Ratzinger had of Ronner, for instance, was Ronner's tendency to try to make um, revelation that which is expected. So it's already sort of latent in what people are thinking anyway. Um, whereas Ratzinger is a, un, of the mind that no, it's revelation is precisely what is the most unexpected. And so his approach to theology is one of humility and reception. And so for him, that's why for him, even as a dogmatic theologian, scripture is the soul of theology. So what he tends to do is more, it's somewhat more inductive and it's more of sort of like, even though he's very critical of the natural sciences in many ways, or at least scientism, it's more scientific in the sense of you're just looking at the data of revelation and tradition, of scripture and tradition. And you're trying to allow yourself to receive it and perceive it. So his method is one of combing and mining the rich tradition, scripture, the church fathers, the scholastics, um, even some contemporary works. And he's just trying to receive it all and then see, allow the data to sort of inform his mind so that he can reach the level of understanding. So then he's seeing the beauty of it. He's seeing the connections as it's being presented to him. And which means he doesn't have, he doesn't like create his own personal philosophy as kind of like Rahner did and then try to shove theology into it. Now he does have very fundamental um, philosophical presuppositions Mainly, he's just for a form of realist metaphysics, which he thinks is absolutely essential. You can't, if you get rid of metaphysics, you've lost everything. So he's very big on that, but he doesn't try to make it fit into his system. So he, he more allows revelation itself to inform his theology. And so that's where I think his, his, um, the greatness of his thought comes from, is that he's just trying to receive the tradition. Let me let me ask a, a question on that point, mm -hmm. because Car uh, so Joseph Ratzinger was the peritus of Cardinal Frings, uh, arguably one of the good Germans uh, among the Germans uh, bishops, that is, at, at Vatican II. And um, he was instrumental in, at Vatican II in many ways. And yes, one of them was, was the uh, the document of Revelation. Um, now, as I understand it, one of the big aspects of this was that Ratzinger felt that the original schema was too much about God revealing sort of propositions of truth and not revealing himself. And Dei Verbum 1, 2, and 3, the first paragraphs, are very much God revealing himself. And then mm -hmm. that sort of becomes scripture and tradition. Can you comment at all on, on, on his, his role in, in the uh, working of Dei Verbum? Yes. I, my doctoral dissertation was on Joseph Ratzinger's Theology of Divine Revelation. And... So, I mean, probably 85% of my sources were in German, so I can't really point you to all the sources there. But the main one was his original Habilitationsschrift, which is, it's basically a second dissertation that you need in German academy 
to be able to hold a chair in an academic post. So you have to write two dissertations. It was his second one. And it was a, the original version of that was on um, St. Bonaventure's understanding of revelation and theology of history. Well, for, you know, his Zungen, his director approved it enthusiastically. His reader, Michael Schmaus, hated it, <laughs> but hardly critiqued the part on theology of history. So he ended up only publishing, and the only part that was passed was the section on theology of history. But he, he always maintained the theology of history. I'm sorry, the part on Bonaventure's theology of revelation as legitimate. He backed it up. He's held to it. And there's even a, a German work um, by Hans-Jürgen Verweyen that argues that that Habilitationsschrift, the original version, is a key to understanding his theology as a whole. And when he was made a parodies at the council, his main concern, he didn't, I mean, he criticized De Fontibus Revelationis, which is the schema you were talking about, for several reasons. But one of the main ones was actually the title, De Fontibus Revelationis, which means on the sources of revelation. And what Ratzinger was arguing was that this is somewhat misleading. Yes, theologians sometimes speak in those terms, saying that scripture and tradition are the sources of revelation. But he says that's actually imprecise because scripture and tradition are not that from which revelation comes. It's the reverse. Scripture and tradition flow from revelation. And so he said they're confusing the order of ontology, the order of causation, with the order of knowledge. So as Aquinas would say, we, we usually, we often reason from effect to cause. So the way that we think or the way that we learn goes in the reverse order of, of causes. We start with the, with the effect and then reason back to the cause. So he's, what he's arguing is that this is imprecise. It's revelation is the source from which scripture and tradition flow. So scripture and tradition are the sources of our knowledge of revelation. They're how we receive revelation. But if you're talking ontologically, revelation, God's self-revelation in history through his deeds and words is the source of scripture and tradition. Yeah, and that's so how De La Verbum sets right. it out. Starts so they are the, God the means of the transmission of revelation. Right. Well, and that brings up um, my friend is in the chat here, Bennett, uh, Byzantine Scotus, who asks this. What role mm -hmm. did his work on Benaventure's theology of history affect his own theology, which you just said it affected it greatly. But I want to ask with well, this um, is because I've heard Ratziger described as an Augustinian. Uh, would you would you label him at all in terms of Augustinian, Bonaventurian, anything like that, as well as what are your He's, comments on this question? I mean, I'll just, I, th I take him at his own word. I mean, he was influenced by a lot of different people, but I think the two strongest are probably Augustine and Bonaventure. So very much influenced by St. Bonaventure and St. Augustine, especially St. Augustine's personalism, mm -hmm. so his, in, in his manner of expressing theology. Yeah, that's the the turning point in his biography is a whole chapter on Augustine when he really 
uh, encountered Augustine. So let's get into uh, some of your other other points. Um, so what's the next point about the greatness of Joseph Ratzinger? It kind of flows from his method. It's the the breadth and depth of his thought. Um, so Ratzinger's theology is both broad, meaning he covers a wide range of topics, and it's deep. So even though it's broad, it's not shallow. It's so that's just very unusual because most academic theologians, which he was for most of his career until he, you know, became Archbishop of Munich and Freising, he he treats so many different areas of theology. Usually theologians, especially dogmatic theologians even, will focus in on one or two subspecialties. Like you might be an expert in ecclesiology. You might be an expert in moral theology. You might be an expert in Christology. But he pretty much covered everything. So, and fundamental theology on top of it. So he did fundamental and dogmatics and even delved into the world of scriptural exegesis. Now, I wouldn't call him an exegete per se, although some of his works are great examples of sound exegesis, but he, he discusses the, the proper hermeneutics we should be using when doing biblical exegesis. So it's just the, and that kind of flows from his, his method, because like I said, he's reading, reading a wide range of people on a wide range of topics. So he's reading the, the church fathers, East and West alike. He's looking to the scriptures as the foundation for any topic he's treating. Um, but then he's still able to go deep into them. And so I, I think that's just very unique. It's not something you see very often in a lot of theologians. Yeah, that's definitely a mark of, of a great thinker, because all the greatest thinkers, like when we think of, you know, St. Thomas, St. Robert Bellarmine, they all have deep, deep works on all sorts of different topics. There wasn't that that uh, specialization as you have. Um, now, you just mentioned a historical point, which we just have touched a little bit histor historically up to his consecration as bishop. And um, another friend of mine is in the chat, David L. Gray. And this is this this point oh, yeah. it happens during this point. So where does Ratzinger's role as co-founding Communio fit into his legacy? First, hi, David. I've had a couple of exchanges with David, not many, but a few were both from Ohio. I was born in Columbus, Ohio. Um, so it was very influential. Um, it's somewhat in the midpoint because it happened in the 70s. But he, the founding of Communio was a reaction against Concilium, as everyone knows. And, you know, they had him and Dulubach and Van Balthazar had a pretty big falling out with the Concilium crowd, who were becoming very liberal, very progressive. And they saw that as dangerous. And also their notion, which is in their name, concilium, was the idea of, oh, this the council needs to continue ongoingly. And Ratzinger was always of the mind, no, a council needs to happen and stop and remain what it is as a touchstone. If it just keeps going on, then you're in constant flux, like Heraclitus said, and then you have no foundation at all. So they were very much against that and were much more of the idea of returning to the sources. So founding your theology on scripture, the church fathers and the scholastics themselves, um, and trying to not just kowtow to the, the popular world and modern culture. 
So engaging the culture, yes, they were big on that, but from the richness of the tradition. And so founding Communio was influential to him also because of the influence, the greater influence it gave on him from people like de Lubac, um, whom he was already influenced by even when he was a student of theology. And uh, during this time, he's a world, he's a superstar. He's a worldwide superstar, even during this, really the sixties. I, I don't know if it, when it really, when he really became a huge star, I don't know if you, cause you mentioned that his 1958 essay, the new heathens and the church, new heathens or new pagans, new pagans in the church, heathens. which is yeah. where he argues that the, the church is essentially ossifying. Um, people are just uh, fast food sacraments. They're not really, they're totally empty. So, I, I mean, it's no wonder that there was this, total breakdown after the council because like people kind of uh took the mask off if you will um that he already saw in 1958 um so when does he really become this superstar is it at the council or before that's a good question so he became a he he took over a chair in theology at the university of bonn was his he worked at like four different universities but bonn was the first well I shouldn't say that he did do some teaching in Munich, um, but his first like professorship was in Bonn and that was very close to Cologne. And that's where Frings was the Cardinal Archbishop. And so he was young I mean, he was in his thirties and basically, I mean, he was already kind of well known but I mean, he was pretty well known early on. I think the council made that even more so because of who it put him in contact with. So people had to interact with him, which meant they had to at least listen to him. And it gave him a platform he would have another otherwise, he would not have otherwise had because Frings was one of the most senior cardinals at the time. So he would have been among the first to speak at any of the sessions because they spoke in order of seniority. And he was also given opportunities to give talks to bishops during the council. Um, and he pretty much wrote all of Frings's speeches at the council. So if Frings said something on the council, he probably got it from Ratzinger. And Frings was pretty much one of the top five players at the council. Yeah. He was a huge player, really he was. He was doing a ton. Good. Yeah. So Ratzinger really shapes the council uh, through Frings. Um it's that, yeah, that's an ongoing argument. Um, <laughs> Father Jared Wicks, I think he's coming more to this side that Ratzinger had more influence than maybe we could prove. There are so many other figures there that were saying similar things that it's hard to say it was because of Ratzinger. See, yeah. So it's like, all right, he helped because he was helping that, but it wasn't like he was the only one. Um, but it, it, it is hard to pinpoint, oh, this was him. It is easy to pinpoint. He said this before it happened, and it happened. Yeah, and one of the most interesting things about him, which you mentioned in your points here, which is what Peter Sewall brings out in his biography, is Ratzinger's modesty and humility. He, he's sort of the superstar, but he's like speaks so softly and just sort of matter-of-factly. Um, but he's packing the lecture halls. I, I know that. Like when he's a when he's a um, professor before the council, all these Germans are are just eating eating it up. They love his presentation of the gospel and the theology. 
but he's just so modest and, and doesn't really care about putting himself out there, unlike some others, uh, unfortunately. Um, so your, your next point is um, the coherence of his thought. Right. Yes. And again, these all kind of relate to each other. So his method leads to a breadth and depth of his thought. But the next one is, despite the fact that he his theology covers such a wide range of areas, it's still very cohesive, meaning you can see how everything is connected. And so I, I, it's the wisdom of seeing the whole. So he looks at every part in light of the whole and, whole and, and the whole in light of the parts. So I think a hallmark of his theology is that he doesn't just treat questions of theology independently from one another. He wants to delve into, all right, well, how does the under, how does the revelation that God is a trinity affect even our understanding of God? How does that affect our understanding of the church and what the church is? How does Christology affect our understanding of the church and the sacraments? So everything in his thought is related. And so that cohesion, I think, is also something that's just, it, it's part of his greatness because it's, you know, sometimes people are, sometimes people like to just ask individual questions as if they're not connected to anything else. And for him, it's like, no, I, the, the, the analogy I use is a jigsaw puzzle. If you, if you just open up a jigsaw puzzle box and you randomly pick out a piece, it's almost incomprehensible. It doesn't mean anything. But as you start to connect the pieces to one another, you have a greater and greater clarity about the meaning of each part. And by the time you put the last piece into the puzzle, you can go back to that very per first piece and say, oh, that's what that means. Because its meaning is understandable in relation to the other pieces. So it, it, a, a hallmark of his thought, which you see time and again, is the idea of the... The analogy of the faith, it's that um, Catholicism doesn't just mean universal. It, it also has a connotation of wholeness, completeness, integrity. You have all of the component parts in their proper relation. And so that's what I think his thought, theology exhibits, is this, this ability to have all the pieces together as a whole. Can you expound just briefly... Um, give, an ex give us an example of like how does Trinitarian theology affect ecclesiology or, or something like that? Any, any of those, that cohesiveness? Yeah, absolutely. Because so one of the things he's famous for talking about is how in the, the early church fathers chose the God of the philosophers over against the gods of the nations, of the pagans, of the religions that in the, the patristic era, the fathers saw their more of an ally in Greek philosophy than they did in other world religions. Which brings me to another book, Truth and Tolerance is another great book where he talks about Christianity in the history of world religions. Because he doesn't think you can lump Christianity in as a it, under a genus called religion that all religions belong to equally. He He's very big on no, there's something very unique here. Um, so, but what that does is it corrects our thinking. So, yes, the God of the philosophers, we can know God exists through natural reason, and we can know certain things about God. 
what we can't know is that God is relational. We can't know from natural reason that God is a trinity. And yet that revelation has a dramatic effect on what we understand because for the, for the ancient Greeks, what were the, what were the three transcendentals? Truth, goodness, and oneness, unity. So like the Aristotelian notion of God was that God was like the supreme intellect whose only proper object was himself because it was the only thing worthy of his thinking. So it had a very enclosed monadic view of who God was as the, un, as the uncaused cause. When you learn through Revelation that God is a trinity, so uh, to go back to Aristotle, the, the metaphysical category of relation is one of the lowest on Aristotle's categories. It's not one of the transcendentals. It's sort of like a leftover. It's sort of like a reflection of the defect of the multiplicity of finite beings in material reality. Right. Relation is just, well, it's created through division and division is considered a lack of unity, which means it's a lack of perfection. So to Aristotle, relation was very low. It's an accident. It's not essential, so to speak. And, But learning that God is three and one, one and three, and therefore in some sense surpasses our categories of unicity and multiplicity, and that the three divine persons are defined as subsistent relations, relationality, is actually now founded in the divine itself. So this, I think, becomes the leitmotif of Ratzinger's theology, is his theology of personhood drawn from the Trinity, which leads to a notion of communion as the, as the key principle of Catholic theology. That everything that exists comes from the Trinity, which is a communion of three persons, perfect communion. And therefore, everything is meant to be in communion. Salvation, what does it do? It draws us back into communion with God. It draws us back into communion with one another. And it even heals our own communion with ourselves, our own integrity, if we receive grace properly. And it's ordered towards the reditus, the returning back to God, who is Trinity. So the Trinity is the beginning and end of all theology. And the the thing that remains constant throughout all of it is the notion of communion. And so what does that do? It helps avoid an overly Protestant or individualistic understanding of salvation. Because part of salvation is undoing the divisions that sin has created in humanity. So the church is a communion. That's why the creed says that we believe in the communion of saints. It's not we believe that they're individual saints who are completely unrelated to one another. Because a share in divine life is a communal life. And so unity in truth and in charity is part of what salvation is. Which is very different than it's just me and Jesus. Yeah, <laughs> that's why the church is part of salvation. It's not something it's actually an effect of salvation and a means, an instrument of salvation. And so he understands the unity of the church. He has a great line in Principles of Catholic Theology, which I actually think he draws from Delubach. It basically says that 
the communion of the church is the consequence. So the, the communion of the believing subject, which is the church, the oneness of the believing subject is the consequent, necessary consequent of the known object. So that the communion of the Trinity requires us to be in communion as well. So his, his, his ecclesiology is fully Trinitarian and Eucharistic. And that requires this communal aspect. Yes, we, we did a whole other show on Eucharistic ecclesiology. Um, and that, that brings up personalism. <clears throat> and now with personalism, you often think of St. John Paul II. Um, are, are you, is that kind of what you just described, the communion, the communio? Is that the uh, kind of his personalism? I mean, it's related because for him, you understand a person as relational being, as meaning a person is more than a mere individual. For him, personhood always involves a vis-a-vis. There's a relation to another is what constitutes personhood for him, which he gets from the persons of the Trinity, the Father and the Son. Mm-hmm. They're only only definable in relation to each other. I mean, that's even Thomas, right? They're right. they are defined as subsistent relations. So the persons are defined as relations. A father is only a father in relation to a son, and vice versa. So there's that's so that's part of it. Where I think the other aspect of his personalism would be in the idea of theology touching the whole of the person. So the reason he prefers Augustine's epistemology and the reason he prefers Augustine's mode of expressing theology is because it moves more. It doesn't just speak to the mind, it also speaks to the heart. And so he he does, especially through St. Bonaventure as well, somewhat um, have a primacy of love. He says that love sees further than truth. It's now truth and love, he will say, are in God. They're the same thing. There's a certain primacy of love there. And so he thinks that theology needs to speak to the whole of the person because he doesn't think that people really are approaching theological questions as if they are just computers that need to write syllogistic input. He, he really thinks that before you've even asked the question or been asked the question, you've probably made some prior decision of the will that is affecting your reception of the, your receptivity to the truth. And so he, he thinks there's a, you need to be able to speak to the whole of a person because that's going to be more effective in showing them the truth than if you just put a series of logical deductions on a chalkboard. So while logic and reason are important for him, they're actually very fundamental. Um, he argues that you can only have dialogue through logos, dialogos, which means you both have to be committed to a truth that is prior to you both. And if you're not both committed to the truth, then there's no dialogue possible. Sure. So he's very much into that, but it's, it is this notion of talking about the whole person and okay. not just reducing things to abstract concepts. Excellent. Yeah, then that goes back into the revelation that we were talking about. 
<clears throat> I want to bring up one question before I lose it once again mm -hmm. from Byzantine Scotus, and that is, um, what are your thoughts on, or what are Ratzinger's thoughts on Scotus or Scotism? It seems to me that some of the Nouvelle Theologie is getting closer to Scotus on grace and especially the will. Any thoughts on that? A couple of thoughts. First, um, I'm not, by the way, I'm not criticizing him for using the term, but I'm just going to say it. I hate the term Nouvelle Theologie. Yes, yes. <laughs> because you usually have terms, term, words and concepts are meant to help identify things. And the, the phrase Nouvelle Theologie does not identify anything because it's such a wide category that it includes people that are explicitly at odds with one another. So as soon as you try to lump Ratzinger in with Schielebecks and Kuhn, you've lost me. That's a pretty broad, other than category of they exist, there's not much else in common in their theologies. Yeah, and th this is just an important so, point to, to know that that the whole movement, so-called Nouvelle Théologie, is very complex. It's tons of different thinkers with vastly different ideas, as as you're pointing out here. Yeah, and, and so you, you so, need to. So, what yeah. what term do you think should be used? Uh, Communio well, thinkers, Concilium thinkers. Communio school generally would race or small. It's, I mean, their fundamental program one was reclaiming the center. They were trying to avoid because they, I mean, they understood. Aristotle's virtue ethics, right? You can you can fail in virtue either by excess or privation, one extreme or the other, right? And so their idea was reclaim the center. Don't become crazy one side or the other. But their main program was to was a return to the sources. It was let's revive patristic studies. Let's revive scholastic studies. So they weren't anti-scholastic in the least. I mean. Ratzinger is very much indebted to St. Bonaventure, which he loves pointing out, um, even in Eterni Patris, is mentioned from a prior quote from Paul, the, I think it was Paul V, Pius V, I forget now, um, that labels Bonaventure along with Aquinas as examples of, they were the two pinnacles of scholastic thought. So, um, anyway, so race or small in general i mean that's really where they where they stand because they're very much against the prog liberal progressives yeah and so so what uh any comments on scotism from i can't comment on scotism I'll, I'll say this i before i ever learned anything about scotus i didn't like him simply because i heard that he was the reason bonaventure was kind of dropped and i love bonaventure but because the Franciscans sort of adopted Scotus instead of Bonaventure, he Bonaventure kind of got swept or put in the attic to collect dust. I've only recently, and I mean in the last year or so, even begun learning about Scotus in any real way. So I can't really say. I've heard some people claim that Dulubach is close to, to Scotus. I don't know because I don't know if about Scotus. And the, the fact that Delubach explicitly is trying to give you an interpretation of Aquinas. So I just don't, I don't know. I, there might be something there. I've heard some people make that claim. Um, I'm becoming more open to SCOTUS. I just haven't really studied him in depth to make any illuminating comments one way sure. or the other. Okay, okay. Uh, well, do you want to finish out your 
other thoughts on the greatness of Joseph Ratzinger? Okay. Yeah. Um, well, we kind of touched on this next one already. It was the beauty of his work. I, I refer to it as the mind through the heart. Um, it's his manner of presenting theology is often very beautiful. I just know that um, whenever I would be reading his work, there would hardly be a single paragraph where I didn't have things underlined, exclamation points, amen, written in the margins, or yes, because it was it wasn't that it was it was sort of like how do I put it? Because I like a, a variety of different approach. I love scholasticism, for instance. I love the rigor of the scholastic method of arguments and you know applying logical principles. I love all of that. Ratzinger's not of that ilk, per se. I mean, he's very rational, but he's he doesn't write in that fashion. But what he has, what he's a master at doing, is convincing you by expressing the truth to where it be, almost becomes obvious, based on its beauty. It just it kind of hits you in the face as he's right, and he he has a way of writing things and saying things that you go, yes, that's what I was thinking, but I didn't know how to say it. And so I think just the, the manner of that he does, it's part of his personalism, but it's his manner of expressing theological truth where he connects these dots and he, he's, trying to, he's trying to walk you through the rationale that, you know, you, you just, it's, it's, again, I think it's similar to, to Bonaventure, who was also a scholastic and very rigorous and intellectual and even philosophical, but was also a little bit more expressive um, where it's the sapiential tradition, the uh, sapientia, wisdom, has a notion of sapere, which is to taste. So it's like you just taste the truth and the wisdom there. And his his way of just putting his finger on the real problems. While everyone's talking about this, here's where it really lies. And you just go, yes, he's got it. And he, he just has this unique way of expressing things that just kind of to me, at least, it, you know, this is a personal list of why I think he's great, um, has just time and again just made me rejoice in what he was saying. Even if he was saying a harsh truth, it was like, amen, mm -hmm. right on track here, <laughs> you know, so. I, I, I definitely uh, feel that way when I read his Spirit of the Liturgy or any, any of his liturgical, because very much, I mean, the liturgy is very much presenting audibly and visibly the beauty of God. And I, I think he writes very beautifully about that. Um, David L. Gray says, um, mm -hmm. what is the anchor of the whole for Ratzinger? He seems very concerned about connecting history with the present. Is time his theological anchor? His theological anchor, methodologically, it's scripture. If you're talking about thematically, it's the Trinity. Now, I, I don't think his best work is on the Trinity per se, um, but I mean, or communio in general, but the root is the Trinity for him. The Trinity reveals that's the source and, uh, and goal of all of reality. So it's the Trinity. Now he does talk about time also bringing in Augustine who Augustine's notion that, um, memory is the mediator between being in time, so to speak. It's that which connects us to the past 
Um, so memory is very important for him in that regard. The history thing he, he mostly gets from, and this kind of answers a prior question, I would say his theology of revelation of Bonaventure probably is more influential than the theology of history in Bonaventure, but the theology of history is in Bonaventure is probably where that part's coming from. And the reason is, so yeah, this is part of his wider, I'm trying to avoid going on a tangent based on the in, initial chapters of my dissertation, but if you understand Ratzinger historically, he's writing his, his second dissertation in the 50s. And he's he's faced with these, these different camps that he's trying to, to work with. While, and he's trying to see, hey, does Bonaventure have anything to say in regards to contemporary issues? And particularly on Revelation. And so he, what he sees is, okay, on the one hand, you have the Catholic neo-scholastic tradition that is emphasizing that truth is perennial in, the sense, in a sense of being ahistorical. So because it's metaphysical and does not change, history is almost irrelevant. And then you've got people drawing from Hegel and things that are emphasizing history as you know, the most important thing. And so Ratzinger's looking at both sides going, all right, guys, you both have good points, we, but we don't have to keep these thing, two things completely separate. So time and again, you'll notice in his writings that he'll bring up metaphysics and history together. So his argument is that it's metaphysical and salvation historical. Because, because of God's providence and his plan of salvation unfolds in history, history is where revelation of the, the perennial truths are revealed. And they are understandable through that history. So, and he and Jesus for him is the perfect example. He is the incarnate word of God. He is the eternal truth itself, and yet he became man in this time, in this place, in this human nature. And so for him, it's he's always trying to link the two. He's trying to avoid it just being one or the other. So history is very important to him, and because God entered into history, and that's where man is. Man lives in history. And so in time. And so Revelation is going to have a, a both. But he doesn't want to forget one side or the other. So that's probably where that's coming. Where that, that's, that's, coming. that's really good because it, it really gets into the, the modernist crisis, like you said, is emphasizing history to such a degree that yes. we have this evolution of dogma. Um, and, and then in response, there is this strong neo-scholastic uh, revival which is good in and of itself, but it can get so abstracted that in response to the his, this historical excess that it gets so abstract that we're up in the clouds. And, and that was the criticism of, of Eve Congar right like the 1930s and um, some of these resource model thinkers is that we need to get back into the reality of what people are dealing with into the history. Uh, and that goes right back into how Dave Verbum kind of lays it out is this historical revelation of God himself um, 
So why don't we finish up uh, the greatness of Joseph Rasmussen? We can we can field some objections right. as well. Yeah. Um, so actually, what we just said relates directly to the fifth point, which is his relevance, because he's he addresses contemporary problems in light of the tradition. So because he's a systematic or dogmatic theologian, a major part of his task is to make the doctrines of the faith more un understandable to the people around him. And so one thing that he does is he doesn't dodge thorny issues. He's He tries to see, all right, what are modern people thinking? Where are they wrong in their thinking? How can we explain to them the truth of the faith, given their current mindset. So he's going to interact with modern thought so that he can speak to modern man without kowtowing to modern thought. But he, he, he does his best to understand it, to state it so that they know he's understanding what, what where, so that they know if they're reading him that, he, yes, that's what we're saying, I mean, Aquinas did the same thing, right? You list the objections first, and then he'll respond to it. So he he makes the truths of the faith relevant to the contemporary situation while remaining faithful to the tradition. But he's he's using it, he's addressing current problems in light of the tradition, and he's he's not shying away from that. And so, like, everyone knows his whole you know, his homily on the dictatorship of relativism, right? Hit the nail on the head. Regularly, he talks about the crisis of fatherhood in the culture, right? And then he talks, I mean, he talks at length about how this can be a barrier to understanding God as father. And then he'll talk about how no, but here's the thing. You don't, unlike the pagan religions, a father God in our case is not an anthropomorphizing of some false deity where we're just projecting human fatherhood on there. No, God's fatherhood is a lens through which we should we should judge earthly fatherhood. And so it reveals the failures of earthly fathers um, as a way of of helping people overcome the barrier of, well, I have a bad experience with my father, so I can't call God father. You're saying, no, you need to understand what it means for God to be father and then judge human fatherhood on those grounds so he 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 that i think he's just he's brilliant at doing that he doesn't shirk from you know having discussions with with that really speak to to contemporary issues yeah and that um that's what we're talking about in terms of the historical sort of the incarnational nature essentially of giving flesh to theology in that sense um Let's get into some of the objections to Ratzker. Uh, one of the most common things that is said is that he was a progressive. He was sort of on the liberal side of things in the 50s and 60s. And then as the crisis of the church kind of got going, um, he switched and became more conservative. Uh, can you comment on that objection to Ratzker? Yeah, you see it from a couple different circles. Some people point to 1968 in the student riots, the Marxist student riots, as a turning point in his thought, where he saw the dangers of these Marxist students and professors that were leading to the, you know, you know rioting on university campuses as a turning point. 
but he already hated Marxism from the beginning. I mean, he Marx is one of his biggest foils in his thought. I mean, he'll bring up Marx seemingly out of the blue when you wouldn't expect it to be related because he thinks it's so bad. So um, it's I think the issue is that whether you label someone as progressive or traditional or conservative depends on where you're standing. Right. So I would argue, as he himself has, and Heinrich Heim, one of his his students maintains, and most of his students seem to hold this as well, he didn't really change. His thoughts been relatively consistent over the years. Um, and I tend to hold that line of thought. I think the 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 difference is before and after the council, as the the academic world became more and more liberal, he began to look more and more conservative and somewhat vice versa. He he wasn't again, this is part of the problem with languages. What does it mean to be a progressive if by pro if by progressive you mean someone of the ilk of, of Hans Kuhn, he never was that. You can't put him in that camp. In his own day and age, you might have said he was progressive in the sense that he was in his call for a return to the tradition, the broader tradition, meaning, hey, let's bring back Augustine, let's bring back um, Bonaventure. Let's read Aquinas directly and not just through commentators or textbooks. In that sense, he was progressive because he wasn't wanting to just stick with the manualist tradition of repeating a list of pre-memorized facts. But he never was a, and he was for renewal, but that's really not progressive if you understand church history, we're always in need of renewal. I mean, Trent was a renewal council um, because renewal was needed then. Um, but it's renewal through the tradition. So in some sense, he was progressive insofar as he was arguing for let's broaden theology out so that it's not just this one school of thought. Um, but he wasn't progressive in the sense of let's just do whatever. Hey, let's pick whatever philosophy we want. No, I mean, from the very beginning, he's very much, no, you need you need solid metaphysics. If you're rejecting metaphysics, you've lost the game. So he right. didn't believe you could just accept whatever philosophy you want. You couldn't just say whatever you wanted. You, I mean, he was always against these theologians who made Christ in their own image. That's one of his criticisms. Right. You know, so. Now, I just put the, that, lecture I, I mentioned earlier new pagans in the church 1958 in the in the show notes below so you can click on that and read this lecture uh what does that lecture tell us about ratzinger and his thought in in view of this question of him being a so-called progressive yeah it was pretty controversial um he, he wrote it in 1958 as a i mean he was a young priest at the time he'd i mean he was very young at the time and he published this. He basically, this came out of, I think his, his one year in pastoral ministry before he went back to university studies. Um, but he, he, it's called the new pagans in the church because what he's saying is right now, our biggest issue are not pagans from the outside. It's pagans from within the church. He, so again, this is well, this is before the council. This is 1958. And he's basically saying, 
in his experience in Germany, most Catholics don't believe the faith. They're not living the faith. They're not practicing the faith. But they're still going and get, getting baptized. They're still going and getting confirmation. They're still getting married in the church um, because it's become the church has become a, a cultural structure. And his concern was that, okay, we're holding on to our, our power as a cultural icon, but we're not actually making sure that the people in the pews believe the faith. So his, he basically was saying, these people are nominally Catholic. And, he's, and one of his concerns is that if you're just, okay, well, these people that haven't been to Mass in three years want their child baptized, let's go ahead and do it even though you have no hope they're going to be raised in the faith, and therefore you're putting further requirements and obligations on the child that his parents are obviously not going to help him with. Or, yeah, we'll just get him confirmed. Or, yeah, we'll just let him get married in the church without requiring anything of them to express the fact that they, that they, that they believe in demanding that they live their faith beforehand, that you're cheapening the sacraments. You're just dispensing them to whoever asks, you know, and you're not really making sure that they really believe the faith. And he thought this was dangerous. He said, because what you're doing is you're allowing unbelief to just run rampant in the church. And you're not holding the people accountable to the faith and you're, you're making it superficial. So, yes, France, he uses France as an example. OK, so France is 99 percent Catholic. But is it really? Right. Do 99% of the people believe the Catholic faith? Probably not. Yeah, they were re-evangelizing France at the time, yeah. the very time of the 1950s. And, and so his, yeah. his part of his question was, well, if we're just going to dispense the sacraments willy-nilly and not require any, have any demands of the faith on them, then we're giving those people the false illusion that they aren't really pagan. And so part of it's like we need to let them realize they are pagan. Yeah, and one of the things you said to me was this this lecture emphasizes the uh that there's no salvation outside the church, even though you know technically we can talk about the invincible whatever, but right. there's an emphasis that he later emph I mean, we could even draw a parallel between 1958 and 2000 Dominus Jesus, one of his best documents, really, this the the unicity. Uh, and salvific efficacy and uh, necessity yeah. of the church. Um, I I, met, I thought of this 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 chapter in in Seawald Volume One, the Genoa speech, page three fifty one. He says this, nineteen sixty one, right before the council. It says Seawald says in his lecture, Ratzinger put Kung in his place. His colleague was just a year younger than him. Ratzinger says this, all errors in this era area which is where Kuhn was making the council out to be this parliament where we could just vote on whatever we wanted to. Uh, Ratzinger says, this is caused by applying a secular constitutional model to the church. This right. misses her uniqueness, which she derives from her divine origin. The council, second Vatican council, is not a parliament. And the bishops are not members of parliament who receive their authority and mandate solely from the people who voted for them. I think this comment is, is kind of interesting because it, it sort of foreshadows the break between concilium and communia. Because concilium is very much seems to be about, well, what do the people want? You know, let's right. survey what what's what's the fad these days. And that's what we should put in a council. Uh, and that's, you know, that's yeah. 
foreshadows the whole debate over Humana Vitae as well. There's a a famous quote from Ratzinger where the truth is not determined by a majority vote. There you go. Here's an objection um, from Byzantine Scotus. Why does Ratzinger endorse modern critical scholarship on the Pentateuch authorship in his book on Genesis? Doesn't that undermine his emphasis on Revelation? So just so everyone knows, there's the documentary hypothesis, which is essentially that Moses did not write the Pentateuch, but it was assembled by various authors. Uh, so I think what Scotus is getting at is that um, there are passages in the gospel where Jesus says, Moses wrote of me, for example, indicating mm-hmm. that Moses wrote the Pentateuch. What are your thoughts on, on this objection? Yeah, I don't, I don't really know that passage he's talking about in particular. I can speak more on his thoughts on historical critical exegesis in general. Um, and it's his basic thought is this by itself, historical critical method is let's put it this way. It's, it's necessary, but not sufficient. And it needs to, there needs to be a criticism of criticism. It needs to acknowledge its own limits. Um, there can be value in it, but he, he basically says, so historical critical method was trying to produce a scientifically verifiable way of interpreting sacred scripture through the application of secular science to theology and even to historical science. So the, the problem was, he said, it didn't actually do this. You have the exact opposite because all these supposed historical critical exegetes paint portrayals of Jesus that are really just images of their own ideologies. So these people proclaiming to use historical critical method are really doing eisegesis. They're reading into the text what they want to see and excluding what they don't want to see. So he basically says it it can't even speak to you today because its own method is what did this particular passage mean at the time it was written to the people to whom it was written? It can't factor in. Well, no, but what did God, the primary author of Scripture, mean for it to have beyond that immediate context? What did he mean for it to have for future generations? What did he mean for it to say to us here today? That's something historical critical method can't do. And it reduces theology so much to just analyzing particular uses of words. So he basically says it has value, but it also has limits that need to be acknowledged. And it must be accompanied with other methods. The analogy of the faith, for instance, it has to be done in um, under the obedience to the magisterium in sacred tradition, that you can't, you, you also need to read it canonically. So meaning you understand each passage of, of scripture, not just in its own historical context, but in the light of scripture as a whole. Um, so he was very big on that. Like you, you, you look at revelation, you look at scripture in light of the whole of scripture, the same way that you look at any part of the faith in light of the whole of the faith. Um, I don't know his reasons for holding the Genesis thing. So I, I don't, I don't even know if he gives arguments for it or not. He might just say it in passing. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't know about that either, but I, I do have this, this comment from his 1988 speech, biblical interpretation in crisis, which mm-hmm. is where he criticizes modern critical methods as um, these, 
these theologians are no longer interested in ascertaining the truth, but only in whatever will serve their own particular agendas. Underneath the existing sources, that is to say the biblical books themselves, we are supposed to find more original sources, which in turn become criteria for interpretation. No one should really be surprised that this procedure leads to the sprouting of ever more numerous hypotheses, which finally turn into a single a jungle of contradictions. In the end, one no longer learns what the text says, but what it should have said. <laughs> so, I, I think yeah, he's, the, he's very critical the, of a lot of the modern exegetes like Boltmann and, and, and those guys. So, yeah, I believe the, the, the Jesus of Nazareth trilogy is really a, a dialogue with these guys. Am I right? I haven't it's, read a lot so of that. He, in, the, in the beginning of the first volume, he brings up these same points again in the introduction about exegesis. And then basically says his, his basic, you could look at it as the prime example of his own understanding of exegesis, which is why it sometimes gets criticized by some biblical scholars. But he doesn't care. It's this is this is how he thinks scripture should be read. I mean, if script if your interpretation of scripture doesn't lead you to more faith and more love for God and more love for the faith, then you're reading it wrong. There you know, go. I always exactly. find it hilarious when you talk about, oh, well, you, you have to understand the literary genre of the text to understand it accurately. Okay, well, what's the literary genre of a gospel? If you're trying to read the Gospels and make them not mean what they say, well, it didn't really, you know, Jesus just resurrected into the faith of the people. That's not what it says, <laughs> right? It's it's meant, it's pushing you to believe in the real resurrection of Jesus. That's what it's doing. So as the foundation of our faith as a whole, like, so if, if your reading of scripture is reducing your faith, and it's not making you love the faith more then you're reading scripture wrong. That's a great uh, litmus test, especially with and the old atheist genre. Yeah, all the atheist so, academics. Yeah, let's uh, let's let's interpret sacred scripture to make us not believe that Jesus was really God. Well, wait sorry, a second. that's absurd. Andrew says, uh, Doctor DeClue, do you think Schmoss's criticism of Ratzinger on his understanding of Bonaventure's theology of Revelation is justified? I'm, I'm guessing you'd say no, but what are your thoughts on that? <laughs> All right. So I addressed this in the last chapter of my dissertation, which was um, a summary with critical evaluation. Yes and no. Now, when I was going to write my dissertation, my initial outline was going to include a section on Schmaus. Because I thought, oh, great. A, a wonderful way of highlighting what Ratzinger was trying to do was to contrast him with the person that told him his work was wrong. So I started reading Schmelz's treatment of theology of revelation from before Ratzinger's time. And I kept going, this sounds awful similar to what Ratzinger says. So why I, I had to literally take this section out of my dissertation because I couldn't find enough conflict. Um, I think Ratzinger thinks there was a lot of um, personality issues that involved because Schmaus was considered to be the medievalist. But Ratzinger chose Zungen as his director. And so he Zungen and Schmaus had problems with one another. So his director and his reader were having their own issues theologically with each other. 
and he thinks that Schmaus was upset that Ratzinger didn't choose him to be the director. Now, this is so Schmaus's main criticism was that Ratzinger's theology of revelation was, well, it, sorry, Ratzinger's presentation of St. Bonaventure's theology of revelation was overly subjective. Okay. Does Ratzinger have a subjectivist view of revelation? Yes and no. It's not subjectivist in the sense of relativistic. And it's also not subjectivist, if you understand that for him, a person only has faith in light of the communion of the church as a member of the church and believing the church's faith. So what is true is that Ratzinger was trying to overcome an overly... How do I put this? He was trying to, in his reading of St. Bonaventure, there's nowhere where Bonaventure equates revelation with distilled syllogisms of short statements of facts as being revelation itself. For as a divine action, revelation is God's revelation of himself to us, right? So because revelation itself means a veil is lifted. Now, you can either have a veil over your eyes that gets lifted so you can see the thing, or there could be a veil covering the thing that you remove. You can look at it either way, but it's a veil is being lifted to remove the barrier between the knower and the known. So revelation is God revealing himself, and it's, so it's primarily God's action. Um, which shouldn't be confused with the results of his act of revealing, which might, okay, well, there's revealed truths. Yes, we know things about, he's not denying the objectivity of revelation. But he, what he did try to say is that in reading St. Bonaventure, he, he, he understands revelation to mean that, sorry, that revelation is not complete until it is received in faith. And so what does he mean? So for him, you can't just point to the Bible and say, this is revelation. Well, no, because you're confusing something. It's God revealing to the, the, the human subject. So until that is received in faith, it's not complete because you could still have a veil. So if you're reading sacred scripture without belief, without faith, and you're rejecting it, Revelation has not taken place in that instance. You're, the veil is still covering your eyes. So until there's the ascent of faith, the process of revelation is not complete. That's what he means. He's not talking about the content. The, I mean, there is content to revelation that we can talk about. But if you're talking about God revealing himself to man, that requires the subject to whom he's revealing. It's sort of like, you know, if you have a pass in football, until the ball's caught, there's no reception. So he's basically just making a distinction between the deposit of faith is one thing. That's closed. There's nothing uh, changing about that in terms of its actual substance and its content. Um, right. Whereas there is also sort of an act. Of, if God is revealing himself, if that's the essence of revelation, each individual soul must... Uh, have the ascent of faith wherein he, God is revealed to that individual soul, as it were. Right. 
So he's, yeah. So what he's trying to say is it's the process of God revealing himself to us. So the human subject is part of what revelation is. So you can't have revelation, for instance, if there were no humans. Right. Okay. So it, it would just be the reality of God, but it wouldn't right, be God's revealed. Right. God doesn't have available over himself for right. his eyes. Right. So revelation is precisely removing of the veil of our eyes. And so until you have a receiving subject, there is so the receiving subject is part of the the event of revelation. So there's a subjective component. Now, Schmaus saying that it was overly subjective and therefore modernist is not true because he wasn't modernist in his, his understanding of revelation. Because modernism is, is struck by, you know, agnosticism about the truth, rat, that not Ratzinger at all. We can know the truth. We need to be servants of the truth. Um, it's not relativistic in any way. There's a subjective component, and he... What I argue in my dissertation is that Schmaus was correct to point out that because he was trying to add to or augment theology of revelation, which had been overly static and reified, meaning turned into a thing that you hold, like in your hand, meaning, oh, that's sitting over on the shelf, that's revelation. Um. Because he was trying to do that, he did emphasize the subjective dimension a lot. And I do think, in my reading of, of that original Habilitationschrift, he could have done a better job of highlighting the other side. As So in trying to overcome the, the overly objective character, he overemphasizes the subjective dimension, but that's partly because that was what he was learning for. That was the key part that he was learning that was new. And this is just Bonaventure, basically. This is Bonaventure. This is him reading Bonaventure. So and saying it, Bonaventure yeah. doesn't have the idea that you don't equate scripture with revelation. They're not, you don't put an equal sign between them. And so, for instance, Ratzinger has this notion drawn from Bonaventure that you don't just have so. Oh man, sorry. There's a lot I could say on this. Um, so for Ratzinger, you have both the external witness and the interior witness. So whether that be, let's say, for Adam and Eve before the fall, the world itself would have been somewhat revelatory, right? There would have been knowledge of of creation bespeaks the glory of God. But there's also an interior witness. The the grace given by God himself to understand, right? Well, the same thing is true now. Scripture provides us with the external witness, and he is affirming that. So scripture and tradition give us the external witness that we can perceive with our senses and receive. But accompanied with that is God's action interiorly within the human person, which enables them through grace to receive it as true. And only when man cooperates with that grace in faith is it actually received, and therefore revelation is complete. And this so if someone throws you a football and you just swat it down, it hasn't reached its the, – the purpose of the throw hasn't reached its goal. Right. 
So revelation isn't complete until it's received in faith. That was his point. And he's taking that from Bonaventure. And it seems to be a very Augustinian sort of framework in terms of a, a looking at the reality of God uh, subjectively in this sense, simply that I'm talking about I I am seeing God, um, whereas the Aristotelian, it's really like a Platonic a way of doing things sort of from the subjective you you see god you see the platonic forms from the subjective intuiting whereas aristotle's and thomas is putting everything out in this objective scientific method and you're kind of like looking at it from the outside and and making all the propositions so it's it's very much that's important as well it's like both and it's, it is a both and it's not yeah. either or in yeah, this because he's basically saying you can have an unbeliever read the entirety of the bible and still remain an atheist or skeptic or a modernist, right? And they're not receiving it in faith. So in that case, revelation is not taking place. Now, God might be, I mean, in some sense, it's giving them an access to revelation. But if they're not receiving it, then it, they're, basically his argument is the veil is still covering their eyes. And a revelation is a removing of a veil. Mm-hmm. So let, let me field another objection. This is kind of going back to Vatican II. We didn't really like talk more about that, but um, is Rassiger the principal antagonist of the Rhine flows into the Tiber Vatican II narrative of some traditionalists? But I think he's what he's getting at is the idea that the Germans sort of came and took over the council and they threw out the game out and they put it, pushed it in their own direction. And we certainly said earlier that Rassiger does seem to be a key player, but this gets into the, the basic uh, critique of Ratzinger of the hermeneutic continuity um what are your i know there's a lot we don't have a lot of time to go over this right. huge topic obviously but any comments obviously we we introduced your uh somewhat of a apologia for vatican II. what are your comments on that in terms of hermeneutic continuity and ratzinger's critique there there were over 2500 bishops at the second vatican council okay there were many Pariti, there were many bishops who had very strong feelings about many different things. Yes, there was a German contingent that was very strong. But if you read, there's one book, oh, I think it's by Brendan Cahill. So you had like, a, when it, I think it was on Revelation, actually, if I'm not mistaken, it was one of the documents, I think it was on Revelation where he goes through the textual analysis of the the various redactions of the text. And it turns out the French are actually the ones that won. The Germans lost. Oh, okay. That's interesting. Because there were the Germans and French tried to work together and it kind of failed. And then the French actually ended up having more influence than the Germans. And you would see various differences in that, depending on what document you're talking about. It wasn't like the Germans took over and got to say what they wanted in every document. You had, and there were a lot of collaborations between people of different groups, the French, the Belgians, the Dutch. Um, oh, what's his name? There's one theologian, uh, Schmolders. Peter Schmolders was extremely influential at the council. Um so you had a lot of different um, people getting things in. And you even had a lot of the um, the um, the Scalaxis got some of their stuff in as well. It wasn't 
you know, so it's it's what I would say is it's much more complex. I, if you read Jared Wicks's book, Investigating Vatican II, he does a lot of going over this and he has several articles on it as well, talking about various people, Schmulders. He's got Ratzinger, he, he, um, Vatican II from behind the scenes. He's got a lot of good art. He's a really good scholar on Vatican II that talks about how the various preti had influences or not. But one thing people don't realize is that even the preti working on the drafts of the documents were overseen by bishops and cardinals. And if any change was made to a prior draft, they had to be able to show how it related to what bishops were saying in the Aula. In other words, the, the theologians working on the draft texts were required to use what the bishops themselves were saying in their deliberations at the council and the requests they were making. The drafters were not allowed to just put whatever they wanted into the documents. If they couldn't say this is based on the intervention of Cardinal so-and-so, or and often it'd be you have one cardinal speaking for 20 others, then it, it wasn't allowed in. So yes, they had an influence, um, but it, it wasn't like one group dominated everything. I mean, you had drafts upon drafts and redrafts upon redrafts of these documents. And it was, no one got to just write it, hand it off, and boom, it's done. It was, it required so many people working together that no one group won everything. Um, yes. So, so this is, this just an area of a, a complex historical event. Vatican II and, a, and the crisis that we're, we're dealing with now and all the complexities behind it. Um, we are going to be covering deeper into Vatican II, especially after um, Richard comes out with his uh, videos. So we'll be doing a little bit more on uh, Vatican II in a couple months at Meaning of Catholic. But the, the text uh, you're talking about, Investigating Vatican okay. II, so this is one of the texts that's uh, a secondary source on, um, on the council to contend with. Uh, if you want to enter the Vatican II conversation, you do have to contend with all of these different viewpoints. And as I said, the steel man uh, making the best possible argument against yourself before you address um, you know, address your own position, basically. So um, final thoughts, uh, Dr. DeClue, the greatness of Joseph Ratzinger. Thanks so much for breaking it down for us. Final thoughts. Yeah. I guess I would say one thing that is key to understanding Ratzinger is despite the fact that he was a genius, he had a brilliant mind. I think a hallmark of his greatness is actually his, his humility and prayer life. I mean, time and again, you'll see him quote the gospels where it says you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned and revealed them to your little ones. He, 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 he talks about how in Bavaria, in Germany, during the rise of the Nazis, it, you know, I'm somewhat paraphrasing here, but who bought into the Nazi ideology? The academics, the doctors, the lawyers, the politicians. Who didn't want anything to do with it and saw right through it? The Bavarian farmer working the land. So you'll awful, often see him talk about the primacy of the faith of the simple. And so, you know, for him, you know, the old woman praying her rosary in the church 
probably has more faith and knowledge of God than some academic theologians do. Yes. And he's very big on that. He talks about how, you know, you used to have to go to confession during um, in preparation for Easter, and you would actually be given a card to prove that you went. And everyone had to go, even if they were like wealthy landowners. And he says that's important. Or the fact that John of Partsum um, was canonized. And he said in this era of, of our putting up like scientific science and technology as like the epitome of human achievement, it's fitting that the church should find herself most fully and accurately represented by a humble Capuchin porter who just opened doors in a monastery. And that's actually part of the nature and mission of theology, where he talks about academic freedom. Because oftentimes you'll see um, the, the liberals especially will say, well, the magisterium shouldn't tell us what to do in theology because we need our academic freedom, right? So they'll portray the magisterium as this tyrannical government that's shackling them and enslaving them. Ratzinger basically says, no, the magisterium is the guardian of the faith of the simple, protecting the people from the tyranny of the academic elite who through their, you know, constantly evolving and changing wacko theories of some, you know, new new philosophy that cropped up yesterday, confuse and instill doubt in the, in the faith of the simple. So he sees the magisterium's role over and against the, the academic theologians as necessary because the faith of simple people has a priority. And you academic people who think so highly of yourselves have no right to confuse the people through your novelties and constantly ca calling into doubt the truth of the gospels and of the faith. And so that's why the magisterium exists for him. It protect, so that I think that's just something to keep in mind with him. He's, he's humble despite being extremely brilliant. Um, and he has this notion of no, pray. That's the primary thing. And people with simple faith got it right. Well, that, that's a, such a beautiful definition of the magisterium. And it is something that he also put into practice as well. It wasn't just all talk as well, because he did attempt as best he could to clamp down on all these academics who were preying on the faith of the simple. So uh, that's a beautiful definition of that. Excellent. Um, so we'll have uh, Dr. Richard DeClue will be on the patron-only Meaning of Catholic uh, in a couple weeks to also talk about Pope Benedict and a very controversial subject uh, that we'll get into. Um, so stay tuned for that, patrons. So thanks so much, Dr. DeClue. Once again, his channel and his writings are linked below along with the Word on Fire Institute. So, yes, all, all you who want to debate Vatican II, we will get to that uh, in a couple months. Don't worry, you'll get you'll get uh, everybody, get your uh, fiery debate going later. Uh, so this was just presenting it kind of in a positive light so we can get more into that later. So, anyways, let's offer up an Our Father. I'd like to offer up um, Father for, for Pope Benedict himself, Emeritus. Uh, he, he will... Uh, pass to it to his eternal reward very soon. So we we do want to pray that he is granted a good and holy death, and that uh, he uh, can pass to the eternal uh, banquet of the Paschal mystery. So let's pray. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven. 
hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Jesus is King. Amen.